Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about how we can reimagine the Canadian economy in this time of unprecedented change. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. The climate crisis is shaping up to be one of humanity's greatest threats, even in the middle of a global pandemic. You've probably heard of the many suggested solutions out there, ideas like taxing emissions to discourage the use of fossil fuels, or planting more trees to absorb some of those emissions. We're offering incentives for people to live more sustainably. But I'll bet there's one solution you probably haven't thought a lot about. Concrete. Over the next 40 years, the world is set to double the number of buildings we construct. And that's going to require a lot of concrete. And it offers a big opportunity for our climate. With new technologies, CO2 emissions can be captured and injected into concrete mixture, permanently taking those emissions out of the atmosphere. And a Canadian company is leading the charge globally. Carbon Cure is based out of Halifax and is working with global partners to create carbon concrete that is both great for the environment and more efficient for carbon manufacturers. Rob Niven is the founder and CEO of Carbon Cure. Jennifer Wagner is the company's president. Rob and Jennifer, Welcome to RBC Disruptors. Thanks for having us. Good morning. So you're on different ends of the country. Rob, you're on Vancouver Island. Jen, you're in Halifax. Here I am in Toronto. So it's great to be able to connect virtually and talk about carbon capture, utilization, and storage. But let's start with some basic explanation, Rob. Walk us through for all of us who probably last engaged in science sometime in high school, what CCUS really is all about. So CCUS stands for Carbon Capture, Utilization and Storage. That can mean three separate technologies that are all connected. Carbon capture would mean pulling CO2 out of an emission source. So it could be a refinery or an ethanol plant or a cement kiln. And then you have to do something with it to provide the climate benefit. Otherwise you just capture it and put it in a large tank and eventually you run out of tanks. So what utilization means is you turn the carbon dioxide into a value-added product. And that could be things like chemicals, fuels, plastics, and in our case, concrete. Storage is another term where you take the CO2 and you put it underground in either a deep saline aquifer or other sources of geological formations that would allow you to put the CO2 away for a very long time. This is probably an unfair comparison, but it makes me think of the landfill equivalent of carbon. We're taking carbon out of the atmosphere in various forms and burying it. A landfill would be more like CCS, so carbon capture and storage. So you're not gaining an economic value from it. You're just putting it away somewhere to the side and hopefully permanently. Utilization would be recycling, where you're taking the CO2 and it is currently or it would normally be a waste product if left to go into the atmosphere. But instead of throwing it away, you're actually turning it into something valuable. So instead of throwing away your tin can as you recycle it and it shows up again as another tin can, but in our case, it shows up as making concrete that goes into our roads and buildings. So you're like the blue box of carbon. You know, that's that's a great term. Yeah. So we are the blue box of carbon dioxide. We are 
the world leader in carbon utilization. I think we would account for something like 90% of worldwide carbon capture and utilization projects, according to a recent report by Third Way. What's been really wonderful about working in this space is that you can succeed commercially, but the overarching benefit in all this is it's extremely rewarding to know that you're doing something very meaningful to affect climate change in a positive way. And we all have families and it's important that we protect future generations. And I think this is something that I gain a lot of satisfaction in is knowing that we can win in business and we can win in a societal impact as well. Jennifer, I wonder if you can help us understand how this plays out, this blue box concept in cement and concrete and what you're doing with carbon in the process. The difference between cement and concrete is cement is the glue that holds the concrete together. So concrete is the material that's being used to build our roads and our buildings. And that's where we operate. So we take the CO2 from any industry. We work with third parties to collect that CO2 and bring it to the concrete plant where our technology injects the CO2 while the concrete's being made. And that's where the magic happens. That's where the CO2 is mineralized within the concrete. So it's permanently bound within the concrete forever. How does that work? If I own a factory, I've got a smokestack, so I'm belching carbon into the atmosphere, not good. Somehow I capture it and get it to you. How do I do that? If you've been to McDonald's lately and had a soda, the CO2 that's in the soda actually came from a smokestack. So there's a very well-established industry around the world to source CO2, mainly for the food and beverage industry. So that CO2 that came from the smokestack, rather than putting it into a soda, we take that same CO2 and put it into concrete. We don't get involved in the capture side of the business because that's a very well-established supply chain. It's readily available everywhere. So where the innovation comes into play is the technology that we've developed that gets installed at the concrete plant to recycle that CO2 to make the concrete greener and stronger. And then the carbon, instead of going into the atmosphere, goes into, I guess, a sidewalk or something else uh, made of concrete and is stuck there forever? That's right. Yep. There's been a lot of research into the space of utilization Uh, Because chemistry dictates what you can and can't make from CO2. Of the things that you can make from CO2, mineralization, which is the conversion of CO2 into minerals, in our case we're making calcium carbonate, that's the most permanent and long-term form of storage, essentially would be mineralized for thousands of years. Amazing engineering technology, even for a simple mind like mine. Rob, take us back to the beginnings of Carbon Cure the origin of the company and what the vision was. This technology came out of some work that I was doing at McGill University, as well as my colleague, Sean Monkman, who was also studying in his case a PhD. We were looking at how CO2 could be used in the concrete industry. And something really interesting and important happened at that time in Montreal, where they hosted the UN climate change meetings. And this was a very formative meeting for not only Canada, but the world to take what we thought was going to be breakthrough action on tackling climate change. It turns out we were a little mistaken, but there was a lot of positive optimism. This was a very interesting period. Carbon capture and storage was something that was very well known. What it also did is it gave a glimpse into how the world was already being affected by climate change. For me, the, the fire was really lit where I was able to 
take this knowledge that I had and couple that with this need where there were some communities that could be helped. And I graduated, had about $10,000 of student loans still left in my pocket and put it to work by starting this company. Moved out to Halifax where we built the business up to where it is today. We have about 250 plants now that are using CO2 to make concrete from all around the world, Singapore and Japan, the US, Canada, soon in Europe. Things are, are going really well. And why Halifax? The honest truth is I fell in love with a girl. And uh, you know how things are sometimes is I followed her to Halifax and she was going to school at Dalhousie. And at that time, I had never been to Halifax before. And I thought it was as good as any other place to start up a company. Turns out I was wrong. It was an extremely great place to start a company. So much talent. There was a great ecosystem of innovators. It felt like Halifax was going through a period of this sort of golden age of tech startups. There was a lot of support by industry and government. It was just a wonderful place to build a tech business. And Jennifer, you're president of the company now. Help us understand a bit of the strengths of the Halifax ecosystem, because it's something we talk a lot about on this program, what leads to innovation. It's never just the brilliant, driven entrepreneur on their own. It's a whole combination of forces from academia to investors to customers. Help us understand how Halifax has helped the company grow. Like Rob said, Halifax turned out to be a wonderful place to start the business. In the early days were residents of the Innovacore incubation facility and they were also one of our first investors so they really opened their doors to us to uh, introduce us to uh, other investors, potential customers, other entrepreneurs who were facing similar challenges in the early days of growing a startup. We've also really leveraged the really high quality students in that market. We have a steady flow of co-op students coming from the engineering department at Dal, a lot of graduates from the local community college. We felt that the quality of the students coming out of the Atlantic universities is very high. And also our first customer was based just outside of Halifax, a company called Shaw Brick. And they were really the first industrial partner to open the door to Carbon Cure to let us come in and play around with some early ideas. And that's where the first generation of the technology was built. I think it's probably worthwhile also saying, Jen, that you also joined Carbon Cure right out of school as well. So I'd say you were certainly right about being able to find high quality students. And in your case, uh, now president of the company, things I think worked out really well, at least from my perspective. One of the things I love about the Carbon Cure story is how Halifax provided such a strong foundation with startup incubators, customer introductions, and access to talent. This is what we need to build amazing businesses right across Canada. Next though, I wanted to learn more about how Carbon Cure could scale its business in Canada and abroad, and what government should be doing to accelerate the opportunity of carbon concrete. I wanna get into the ambitions for Carbon Cure and how big the opportunity is for you, not just for the company, but for the efforts on climate change. Let's go back to the engineering for a moment, because probably a lot of us are still trying to get our heads around this notion of taking carbon, putting it in a tank or however you ship it to the concrete factory and get it into mineralization. Are the economics of this appealing enough for the end user, Rob, 
for the market to make this work, or do there need to be other forces, regulation, taxes, incentives, what have you, to spur this sort of innovation? I strongly believe that for climate technologies to scale to the size and the timeline that's required is there needs to be an economic incentive. This is something where jurisdictions and you know a certain government are, are not going to be enough to be able to have the breadth and speed of impact that's required. So we need to be able to rely on capitalism to drive growth. So for that matter, we do put a lot of work and we have created the, the right solution that drives economic benefits, I would say first and foremost, material performance benefits in the concrete, and then climate benefits. So if you can find alignment between the economic gain and the environmental benefit, then you have something that's truly scalable in a global fashion. And we've done that. That's why we're so far ahead in this space. And the way that that's achieved is actually building off of Jen's description earlier, is that once you mineralize the CO2 in concrete, something really cool happens. The CO2 makes the concrete stronger. So stronger matters because it allows a concrete producer to optimize the proportions of cement used in concrete. So what that means is if you're able to use less cement to make concrete of the same strength and performance, that gives you an economic incentive. The proof point to that is, is if you look at where some of our plants are located, in fact, maybe even the majority of our plants are located, they're in areas where we can't even talk about climate change in our sales process because it's too politicized. Is that the United States or what areas are you referring to? Yeah, there's certain portions of the US where it's a very politicized issue. So we just decide to say, okay, that's fine. We'll stand on the economic merits and the performance benefit merits alone. But I think what's been really interesting out of that is that even in those places, the environmental benefit, of course, is still there. But what we see inevitably is that even in these markets, the building industry is changing so fast right now to lower their carbon emissions and specifically something called embodied carbon emissions of buildings. There's so much demand and that they're asking for solutions everywhere, including from our customers. Our customers are picking up on this where they didn't expect it would be such a sales driver for their business. And then once they start to understand this as they're reaching back out to us and say, tell me more about this climate benefit thing. How do we talk about this? How do we gain a sales competitive advantage? And we're more than happy to re-engage with them and then help them gain that commercial advantage in the marketplace. And that's where we really start to see things flourish is where they're benefiting from that sales differentiation. And secondly, from having that economic savings of using less cement. That's the key is like, if you want to build a scalable global climate solution, you know, we have aspirations to reduce 500 megatons a year. That's no small feat, but we feel there's a clear pathway to do that. But I think the challenge comes in with the pace of change. Yes, we could reach that number if we were given enough time, but we've only got 10 years. Is the economic incentive for an operator enough to make it work on their own? Yeah, that's the bar that we have to pass in every single sale. If the economic benefit alone doesn't justify using this technology, we wouldn't have any sales. But to scale it in the time frame that you believe we have as a planet, we need more than just market forces. I believe so. 
The issue is often that regulations prohibit innovation. It sounds perverse, but a lot of regulations around concrete were written decades ago, and they prohibit concrete producers from being able to innovate with carbon cure or anything for that matter. Give us an example. Most of us probably aren't familiar with concrete regulations. So what I'm talking about is something called prescriptive versus performance-based concrete standards. These are two types of directives on how concrete can be made. And I'm thinking about one of my colleagues that was explaining this the other day, and he compares concrete to a chocolate cake. So if you go to the baker and you say, I want to have a chocolate cake, and I want you to use exactly these ingredients. I want two eggs, this much flour from this specific brand, and I'd like you to make that for me tomorrow. This may be uh, not the optimal tasting cake, but if you were to go back to that baker and say, give me the best chocolate cake since you're the expert and I have this much money to spend on that cake, I'm going to guess that if you leave it to the experts to be able to make the best tasting cake, it's probably going to taste better than the one that you're being very prescriptive in telling them how to do their job. And that's where we run into problems and also a lot of environmental excess damage is if you don't let the experts lead, then you get suboptimal products. That's done largely to protect the public interest, at least initially, to make sure that the quality was there. But if you tell the concrete producer to still maintain all of the quality requirements, and then you give them the parameters to work within, then you're really allowing the experts to innovate. And I think that's what we need to do first. And then I think we need to prioritize choosing products with a lower carbon footprint. And I think once you do that, you're really going to be surprised with a lot of innovation that comes to the marketplace without having to compromise anything. Rob, we've been talking a lot about market forces, but before we get deeper into those, I'm curious what you think governments should be doing, if anything, to accelerate the opportunity that you're talking about. I operate very deeply in this climate tech or clean tech, carbon capture utilization storage. And I think where the gap is on government action especially in the CCUS spaces, there's a lot of discussion right now about increasing the supply of CO2. And as Jen has explained already, there's already a lot of CO2 in the marketplace from this industrial gas sector. And yes, uh, eventually that will be the limiting factor, but having more CO2 in the market doesn't necessarily mean more CO2 is going to be used. And it's simple supply and demand. What we need to do is stimulate demand for products and we can define how we want to stimulate that demand. That's where we're going to see more scale up of the carbon utilization space. And that's really the profit center. And it's also where the environmental benefit occurs. So for that matter, I'm really encouraged to see a lot of policies being developed in the US where governments are setting procurement policies to preferentially purchase concrete made with CO2 when it's apples to apples, the same cost and supply schedule. Now, why this is really important is government is the by far single biggest consumer of concrete. So when the largest buyer of a product in the marketplace says that they have a procurement preference, that's really powerful. That's when the industry really shifts. And we've seen that happen 
many times over in the US where these policies have been enacted. And just recently, the Canadian government has also just passed an RFI or request for information on a very similar strategy that they're contemplating. And we are wholly supportive of that because we think that that's a really prudent way to scale up this space and doing it in a way that is very conscious of budgets and protecting the public interest from a quality perspective. Jen, what other sources of demand do you think will grow over the coming years? I'm guessing there's only so much concrete the world can produce. You mentioned soda pop. Where else can we look to absorb or utilize the carbon that Rob was talking about? Some of the stats on how cities are expanding over the next couple of decades are pretty staggering. What is it, Rob? Uh, we're building a New York City every month for the next 40 years? Yeah, we'll be doubling our, our building stock. Everything that humanity has built, we'll be building it all over again in the next 40 years. I think another trend that we're seeing is demand from end users. So government, like Rob mentioned, is the largest purchaser of concrete. But we can't forget about the developers, the tech companies who are building campuses. There's a ton of demand from architects and engineers who've signed commitments to decarbonize the building stock. And so we're seeing a lot of interest from, we call them specifiers, who are specifying lower carbon building materials. Another trend that we're also seeing is companies interested in supporting the space of utilization by purchasing carbon offsets. So there's some large tech companies who've made commitments to decarbonize. And one of the ways they're doing that is, aside from reducing their own emissions, is to also purchase carbon offsets. And so if we can show that that demand is there from Stripe, for instance, purchased some carbon offsets for the last couple of months alongside three other companies in the space of utilization. And the idea is that by purchasing offsets from the space, that that will create another accelerator to further encourage concrete producers to adopt the technology faster at more plants, use it as much as they can to further reduce CO2. So it's this sort of beautiful flywheel effect of dangling a bit of a carrot in front of the industry to say, let's move a little faster. I think I've read that the average high-rise building saves something like one and a half million pounds of CO2 emissions. That's equivalent to 800, 900 acres of forest in a year. Everyone's very excited these days about so-called nature-based solutions, planting trees to absorb all the carbon we're pumping into the atmosphere. I guess I wonder, is it enough? I would say it's not. Like We need to have all shots on goal. And no silver bullet is going to deliver us our climate targets. And if we look just at concrete, which is something that we live and breathe, we need to do things like encourage uh, Portland limestone cement use, which is something that Canada has been a leader in, but or we have some prohibitive regulations for that are stopping its use or limiting its use. So we need to get rid of those. We need to use all of our traditional tools as well, like using fly ash and cement and smart mix design optimization. So there's lots of things that can be done. We are, John, going to need as, as many solutions deployed as fast as possible. And we should remove these artificial barriers where they do exist and look towards government to implement any accelerants where it makes sense. Private sector, of course, has a really important role as the adopters of these technologies because it's not clean tech companies that are delivering the emission reductions. We're just creating the solutions. It's heavy industry that needs to be picking up these solutions and plugging them in. So we need to work really closely with a whole variety of different stakeholders very quickly 
to be able to meet the type of climate goals that we're looking to achieve. Well, you talked about the number of cities that will be built over the coming decades. Presumably, most of those are in Asia. How do you gain a greater foothold in Asia? I would say that the way to gain a greater foothold in in Asia is through partnerships. We need to recognize that we don't understand the market as well as local players. So in Singapore, we work with a company called Pan United, for instance, which are a large concrete and technology provider to the Southeast Asian market. We found a very like-minded partner that has the same type of ambitions, and we're going about a partnership to scale up the solution, but they're going to know the market and the players so much better than we do. So we need to look at our international growth as in the lens of partnerships rather than going at it alone because we can never grow organically fast enough and understand the intricacies of each individual market to be able to meet our growth targets and our climate scale-up targets. Jen, you're passionate about getting more women engineers into this field. If you're going to build 1,700 or 2,000 plants over the coming years, I assume you're going to need a lot more engineers. How do we get more younger Canadians, male and female, into this field? Yeah, I spend a lot of time thinking about diversity of our teams and especially women in tech roles. And the stats aren't great. If you look at, especially when it comes to leadership roles, maybe 5% of Canadian companies have female executives on their team. And I know, I think it was the Silicon Valley Bank did some research about this and found that half of tech companies had at least one woman on their leadership team, which at first glance kind of sounds good. And then you're like, so half of them have no women on their leadership team, which is definitely not good. So I think that's definitely something that needs to change. And if we can get more women into STEM uh, at an earlier age, get them interested in it and, and encourage them to pursue these types of careers, then in the next five, 10 years, we'll have a much larger pool of candidates to choose from when we're hiring. And then once they're in the careers, we need to be able to support them and provide them with access to mentors and encourage them to excel in their careers. So I think there's a lot that can be done and we just need to get started. This is such a good Canadian story. I'm curious what Canada needs to do to keep you growing like that and keep you Canadian. Canada has a real competitive advantage when it comes to supporting high growth, clean tech companies like Carbon Cure. Just to name a few, Mars has a, a new program they've just launched this week called Momentum, and that's targeting high-growth companies that are on their way to reaching $100 million in revenue. So that's just one example of the many supports in place for companies like ours to help accelerate growth. Canada's hosting the Carbon X Prize, this $20 million competition to turn CO2 into products, and Emissions Reduction Alberta ran a program over the last few years called the Grand Challenge again, to find innovative uses to take carbon dioxide out of the air and make uh, valuable products. So I think Canada has a number of programs and supports in place to help companies like ours grow. And as we reopen the economy, rebuild the economy, there's certainly a great spirit to make it a greener, more sustainable economy and a more inclusive economy. It's inspiring to hear stories like this, to see how the private sector can play a key role in that. Rob and Jennifer, thanks for being part of RBC Disruptors. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, John. After my conversation with Rob and Jennifer, it was clear to me there isn't a single solution for climate change. 
but rather a range of measures we'll need in the years ahead. They spoke to five big ideas that stood out to me. Number one, we need to focus on more than emissions. A lot of climate talk is about cutting emissions, but we also need to deal with centuries of carbon already in the atmosphere. CCUS, as it's known, can pull some of that out of the air and put it back in the ground. Number two, concrete may not be pretty, but it's effective in putting carbon back in the ground. Even as excitement grows over the potential of new forests to recapture carbon, concrete may be able to do just as much, especially if we think of it as a recycling bin for carbon. Every cubic yard of concrete using carbon utilization technologies can save 25 pounds of CO2 from entering the atmosphere. That means a high rise can do the work of nearly 900 acres of forest. Number three, we're on course to add as many people to cities over the next 40 years as we did over the last 40 centuries, which means a lot of new buildings and roads, and they'll need a lot of concrete. Yet, the way the world makes concrete today is economically inefficient and environmentally unsustainable. New technologies can help on both fronts. Number four, Canada can be a leader in carbon capture, utilization, and storage, and turn this into a massive technology-driven export. Carbon Cure has a 90% market share in what it does, and that market is growing rapidly, especially in Asia. But it's not the only Canadian player. We have the scientists, engineers, and global connections to rapidly scale these opportunities. And number five, governments need to play a leading role through procurement. Local governments are the biggest purchaser of concrete. Many US cities have mandated the use of climate-friendly building materials, including concrete, to reduce their climate footprint. Canadian cities and provinces can step up and do more, especially as they invest heavily in a climate-friendly recovery. The climate crisis is accelerating. We have a decade left to reduce carbon in the atmosphere or else risk irreparable damage. Breakthrough technologies will be critical. And if we see this as our moonshot, a chance for Canada to lead the world in emissions-reducing technologies, we can help set a new course for entrepreneurs and innovators while leading the global fight against climate change. Thank you for listening to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about innovation and how we can reimagine the Canadian economy in this time of unprecedented change. If you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or chat with us on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. We'd love to hear where you'd like us to take the conversation in future episodes. This episode was created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and produced by Quill and Origins Media House. The content of this podcast was based on information available at the time of recording and should not be considered as a recommendation for any investment, product, service, or company.